Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Sonia, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Triple Negative Breast Cancer and Fear of Recurrence. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation. And I must say that I will be saying much more about that as the program goes on, but I really want to thank them for the support, not only of this program, but for many of our programs on triple negative breast cancer as education programs, and also for the support of our um, triple negative breast cancer helpline, which we'll be hearing more about as well. Now, today's program is made possible by the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation, a grant from Genentech and Celgene Corporation. I really want to thank them for their support of the program today. Now, we have a lot of people on this call today. Um, there are over um, 425 participants on the call today. You come from all over the United States, from both rural, urban, and suburban and frontier communities. And we also have a very large number of international participants. I'm just going to read off the countries that are um, um, attending as well. Um, Australia, Canada, Dominican Republic, Egypt, England, Germany, Greece, India, Israel, Japan, Mexico, Nicaragua, Russia, Singapore, and the United Arab Emirates. So really it's a bit of a global call as well. The majority of participants are from the United States, but we do have participants from other countries as well. And uh, it's really a credit to you that you have chosen to spend the next hour with us. Now we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Sarah Talani, and Dr. Talani is Associate Director, Susan F. Smith Center for Women's Cancers, Associate Director, Clinical Research, Breast Oncology, Senior Physician, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Assistant Professor of Medicine, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Talani is going to be addressing a review of triple negative breast cancer treatment in the context of COVID-19, making informed treatment choices and follow-up care, and effective healthcare communication and telehealth appointments. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Tulaini. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Um, so I wanted to spend a little bit of time just generally giving an overview of triple negative breast cancer and the general treatment approach that we take uh, both for an early stage triple negative cancer as well as in a patient who may have metastatic triple negative disease. And then take a step back from that and uh, discuss how we have made some adjustments to things during COVID-19. So just in general, as I think most of you on this call know, triple negative breast cancer is really defined as a breast cancer that does not have expression of the estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, or HER2. These cancers often tend to proliferate or grow a little more quickly than a hormone receptor positive cancer, for example. And it often can present in patients who are of younger age and does seem to have an association with uh, genetic mutations, specifically with BRCA1 mutations. When we think about how to treat triple negative breast cancer, if a patient is first found, for example, to have an abnormality on breast imaging or a mass in their breast, we're often thinking about trying to give some therapy prior to surgery. It used to be, you know, many, many years ago, all patients would go to surgery first, and then we would determine what medications we may need to give in order to kill any stray cells that could be potentially left behind in the bloodstream or lymphatic channels after surgery. But we've since learned that it's actually very beneficial to actually reverse the order a bit in many situations and think about giving systemic drugs beforehand. And the reason for this is not only does it potentially allow us to shrink a tumor down prior to surgery, often making the surgery a little bit easier and, and less invasive, 
but it also gives us a lot of very important information because it allows us to understand how the tumor responds to chemotherapy. So in the event that the tumor did, had a really nice response to the chemotherapy, then after surgery, patients may not need any additional treatment, whereas if the tumor wasn't quite as sensitive to the drugs that we gave prior to surgery, that tells us that we may need to give additional drugs after surgery to help kill any stray cells left behind. So in fact, giving what we call preoperative or neoadjuvant therapy is actually very informative and can allow us to improve outcomes by better understanding how sensitive a tumor is to the treatment. And so the standard treatment for a patient who may have more than a centimeter and a half or two centimeters of triple negative cancer is to give some chemotherapy up front. And this can consist of lots of different regimens. Sometimes it's a regimen we call ACT. Sometimes it's something called TC. Um, and then patients go to surgery afterwards. And if there is some cancer left behind at the time of surgery, then we often give an extra oral chemotherapy called capecitabine, also known as the LODA. So an oral pill that's taken to help kill any potentially stray cells that could be left behind. Whereas if someone got chemotherapy prior to surgery and went to surgery and actually had no cancer found at the time of surgery, then we're often not giving any additional medication-type therapies after surgery. There's been a lot of interest in trying to do even better um, with some of the therapies that we give. And recently, there was some data that suggested that potentially adding immunotherapy, specifically an antibody called pembrolizumab to the standard chemotherapy drugs that we give prior to surgery can actually make the response to the treatment significantly greater. So what they found was that when patients had pembrolizumab added to chemotherapy, the number of patients who had no cancer found at the time of surgery went up significantly. And there's some very early data when following patients that actually the patients who got the immunotherapy also had fewer recurrences. We're still waiting to get more mature data to make sure that, in fact, it's true that there are fewer recurrences when patients had immunotherapy. So it's not quite standard for us to be administering at this time, but I think it's something we may see incorporated in the future. So that's sort of one perspective on patients who present with a breast mass or an early stage triple negative breast cancer. I think if we turn to patients who may have cancer that had recurred after that triple negative cancer, um, we would consider that metastatic triple negative disease. And we've also seen very impressive headways that have been made and with newer agents coming along for treating metastatic disease. One of the first improvements that we saw was the addition of immunotherapy to chemotherapy, where we found that adding immunotherapy to chemotherapy allowed women to have their cancer controlled longer and live longer with their disease, which was a really big improvement um, in outcomes for people. But we found that adding the immunotherapy really specifically worked in patients who had tumors that had a PDL1 receptor on the cancer. So about 40% or so of women who have triple negative disease will have this PDL1 receptor on their tumor. And if they have that, then adding the immunotherapy to chemotherapy seemed to be beneficial. And so now we are starting to test all patients who have metastatic triple negative disease for the PDL1 receptor. We also actually just got a very recent FDA approval for a new drug for triple negative disease called Safetuzumab govotecan, also known as IMU-132. This is a really unique uh, drug because it's what we would call a drug antibody conjugate. So it's taking an antibody that's targeting a particular receptor on the triple negative cell, something called the trope 2 receptor, and it's tagging to that antibody very potent chemotherapy. So what happens is the antibody binds to the cancer cell and then gets taken into the cancer cell and releases the chemo into the cell. And we found that this drug is associated with very impressive uh, responses in patients with triple negative breast cancer. And so it's very exciting to see that FDA approval come, uh, and now this agent is uh, available uh, for patients 
with metastatic triple negative breast cancer. And I will just say there are lots of new exciting drugs that are in the pipeline for triple negative disease. Um, other antibody drug conjugates, for example, are in development. There are also oral targeted drugs that are in development, such as AKT inhibitors, which look quite promising. And for patients who have a germline BRCA mutation, we do also have the availability of an oral drug called a PARP inhibitor, which also seems to be very active and actually performs better than chemotherapy. So, you know, I think overall there has been great progress that has made and has been made, and I think we'll continue to see newer and newer agents come along for triple negative breast cancer. I think putting that into perspective now, I think there have been some adjustments to our treatment paradigm since COVID-19. Certainly with COVID-19, there has been an effort in trying to keep patients as much as we can out of um, the hospital and trying to keep them at home for for as much as we can to prevent exposure of patients uh, to potential COVID. We do worry that patients who are potentially immunosuppressed by being on systemic treatments for their cancer may be at higher risk um, for complications due to COVID-19. And so we really do want to make sure that we are cautious uh, in trying to prevent exposures for our patients. And so certainly at our center, we have made a lot of efforts to try and do a lot of visits with our patients virtually when it's possible and to allow for some of our patients to get some treatments done potentially closer to home um, than they would have coming in, um, for example, to to a center that may be further away from them. Um, And, you know, in general, there has also been some changes in um, what's available. For example, during the peak of COVID-19 at our institution, we were not able to do breast surgeries uh, for a few weeks, and that has certainly started to ease up, and now we are starting to do cases. But during that time, it did mean that patients weren't readily able to get to the operating room. But in the case of triple negative disease, again, we were trying to give systemic treatment prior to surgery anyway, So a patient who presented with a triple negative breast cancer was, we would normally advise to get chemotherapy prior to surgery in most cases. And so it didn't so much change the the order of treatment since that was our standard anyway. Um, And, you know, there's certainly been a prioritization to get those patients finishing their preoperative chemotherapy into the operating room. So, you know, I think there certainly also have been adjustments for patients who may have metastatic um, triple negative breast cancer, also trying to incorporate as much telemedicine as we can. I think one challenge is that a lot of the therapies that we give are often IV therapies, in which case patients are coming into the center to get treated. And so it's a little more limited in how much, you know, we can keep people at home. Certainly people who are on oral medications and um, we've also tried being able to ship them drugs to their house so that they're also able to continue on treatment with, um, you know, minimal visits um, to the cancer center as needed. So I think, you know, there certainly have been lots of adjustments. And I, I think from my perspective, it's certainly been a learning lesson for us, too, because, you know, it's amazing to me how we never had the ability to do telemedicine and you know, I think how nice it's been when there are opportunities to do that for patients to be at home um, and to be with their families and not spending quite as much time coming to and from the cancer center. And I, I think, again, we've learned a lot about how we can potentially change practice so that we can allow this, I hope, moving forward. Uh, but again, I think for the most part, we've been able to, to continue caring for patients very well uh, and um you know, again, I think the COVID-19 situation um, is something that has certainly taught us a lot, uh, and I, I hope that we're able to take away the good parts uh, of the learning from this. Excellent. Wow. Thank you so much, Dr. Delaney. That was really outstanding and really set a, a amazing context for the program today. Just phenomenal. Thank you so much. Thanks. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Um, our next speaker is Dr. Julia Rowland. Dr. Rowland is Senior Strategic Advisor, Smith Center for Healing and the Arts, 
And Dr. Rowland will be addressing fear of recurrence, concerns that cancer may come back in the context of COVID-19, events that may trigger fear of recurrence, and balancing reality with stress management tips. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Rowland. Thank you, Dr. Messner, for that lovely introduction and also for the opportunity to be part of today's program. Worry that cancer may come back is arguably the most broadly experienced effect of living with a history of cancer. And for today's conversation, to put what we know in context, I thought I would try to answer some of the most commonly asked questions about fear of recurrence, starting with the, probably the most obvious, and that is, well, how common is fear of recurrence or progression? With rare exceptions, individuals diagnosed with cancer, regardless of type of cancer or stage, will, at some point in their illness experience, think about the disease progressing or coming back. In a large study in which I was involved that had 860 women with early-stage breast cancer, not segregated by whether they were triple negative or not, certainly including women in that population, all of these women were one to five years post-treatment, and we asked them how much they worried about the cancer coming back. Only 14% of these women, remember they're one to five years post-treatment, said they weren't worried at all. So small segment says not worried at all. The larger share, a little, I'm worried a little, were 45%. But an impressive 23% told us they were worrying a lot about the cancer coming back. And that's really the group that, in some ways, I want to keep my eye on. If you're somebody who's had triple negative breast cancer, you have good company if you are worried about the disease coming back. And the question then becomes, do these anxious feelings or thought go away over time? Will this get better? And the answer is yes. Our data would suggest that women report lower fears of recurrence over time as they come back for their repeat follow-up visits. They're reassured that they're doing well. But in many cases, that anxiety never fully goes away, nor should women expect that she can make that go away. It'll be parked somewhere. The question is, what can we do to effectively manage it? And the answer is there are lots of ways that we can effectively manage it. A third question many people ask about fear of recurrence is, well, who worries and why does she worry? And there are really three broad sets of factors that affect women's anxiety about fear of recurrence. First set of those are medical. What type of cancer? So we know triple negative women may be a little more anxious because it doesn't respond to the usual markers that more women have. The type of treatment, whether she responds really well to the adjuvant or neoadjuvant, as we just heard Dr. Tulaney talk about, or maybe she has to have additional treatments. Her prior experience with recurrence, if she's had a recurrence before or cancer before, is going to contribute. Perhaps the most important in here is what she's understood from her physician. And here it's an important reminder that going back and making it, having a good conversation with your clinician about what is your real risk is very important for women because many, many women over-exaggerate the risk. A second set of factors that affect fear of recurrence are personal or, or psychological. Your personal belief, is this disease going to come back or not? Whether you believe you're at high risk, again, your past experience, whether you've had a recurrence before, or you know someone who's had this disease and either done well or done poorly will influence how you feel about it. How old you are, your developmental stage, if you will, younger women clearly more anxious about this because they have more to lose, so to speak. If you're 28 when you're diagnosed, it's very different than when you're 68 or 78, where you've lived a lot of your life already. Not that older women don't worry, but when you're younger, it has a different meaning. And of course, your emotional state. If you're anxious and you're in the middle of COVID-19 and you're really worried about everything, that's going to make your worry about your health increase. So don't be surprised by that. And then there are the social factors that contribute, what you hear or read. So you could argue the sort of dark humor here. The good news is we have everything about COVID-19, and we don't read a lot about cancer these days, whereas in the past there's a lot of media coverage about cancer, and it can be very upsetting uh, and anxiety-producing. So minding how much you're reading the papers, creating more anxiety for yourself is important. 
and also the response of others, our friends or family. Sometimes family is much more worried about a recurrence or disease progression than the woman herself, and so it's being sensitive to that. A fourth question that's frequently asked is, well, what, what contributes to these concerns? And I think of there being different what I call triggers to anxiety, events that occur across the course of care, either during treatment, while you're leaving, or just anticipating making that transition to recovery or after treatment. So the kinds of things that happen during treatment that may increase anxiety is change in treatments, even when these are appropriate. Say a dose modification or schedule, as you hear Dr. Tulaney say, we've had to change practices because of COVID-19. Women may be anxious because it's changed the game plan. That can jump up anxiety. Change in your physical state. You have a side effect and you worry about what that is. Or a lack of a side effect. Some women may say, maybe the treatment's not working because all my hair didn't fall out or I didn't have that pain syndrome that, that so many people talked about. And one that often takes women by surprise and their practitioners is anticipating the end of treatment. Here you've been through all of this treatment. You finally see an end in sight. And what happens is being grateful to be finished with all that, anxiety can go up. And why? Because that fear that the cancer will now return, treatment has stopped, now that treatment has stopped, is very common. Worry about who's going to do the monitoring. Can I do this by a telehealth? Who's going to check in with me regularly? Because I had a whole team who were taking care of me before. What's going to happen? That loss of a supportive environment, which, again, as Dr. Tulaney has said, COVID-19 has taught us we can recreate some of that by virtual meetings and virtual follow-up and virtual outreach. Many women at the end of their treatment are feeling a lot worse than they did when they started this journey. That makes the reentry harder. And finally, there's the social demand. Everybody wants you to be who you were before this whole adventure, if you will, started. And that's not going to happen for a while because recovery takes time. Then there are triggers to anxiety post-treatment. First and foremost among those are the follow-up visits. Am I going to continue to be fine? Will the test come back, show everything is as expected? Those are some of the hardest to deal with, and planning for those is important to reduce your own anxiety. Anniversary dates may trigger worry. The date you were diagnosed at that time of year, any symptoms are suspicious or you can't interpret that don't add to the list that we see on COVID-19. And even the ones on COVID-19, you may say, is this virus or is this breast cancer? making it very difficult sometimes to make sense of what's happening. Change in your own health, times of stress. Again, we're living in an era of high stress. No surprise that you're stressed out about your health. And then the other question is, what impact does that worry? And many people worry about the impact of stress on health. The truth is, all of us worry. We live in a world in which worry is a part of, a normal part of. The two groups that I focus on when I think about this and worry and health are the extremes. People who don't worry at all and those people who are find themselves worrying all the time. For the individuals in the never worry group, the reason I worry about them is because I am concerned that they won't do the recommended follow-up. They won't engage in health-promoting behaviors or they ignore their own health. That's the risk of not worrying at all. A little bit of worry is a stimulus for us to act. But on the other hand, women find themselves worrying all the time and potentially avoiding doctor's visit, but more commonly visiting physicians all the time because they're hypervigilant. They're looking at every symptom and um, are, are worried. I worry about them because I don't want them to become chronically stressed. And that's worry where we have interventions that work. And that's that sixth question, what can I do about my fears? Here I'm going to talk about three broad areas one can consider because I know Dr. Hurley's going to talk very specific about some techniques in here. And that would be things that you can do, take action to reduce your physical risk, taking good physical care of yourself, talking to your, your physicians about when symptoms come up, getting accurate risk information, 
asking about risk-reducing interventions if these exist because we have so many new interventions coming along the pipeline. Then you can take action to reduce your anxiety by taking good care of yourself. Emotional well-being is important during this time. Planning pleasurable activities, doing nice things for yourself, taking time out for yourself, talking with other survivors and families. That peer support can be incredibly beneficial. And learning and using relaxation techniques. And a final set here is rethinking how you view your episodes when you're worried about recurrence, recognizing that there will be triggered points, as I mentioned along the way, that anxiety can fluctuate. You'll go along fine for a whole period of time, and then all of a sudden you're very anxious again, and it's stopping and saying, why am I worried? What's this all about? Refocusing on the joy of one day at a time, which we are relearning as we're all harboring at home. Reframing your beliefs about what signs and symptoms mean, and thinking about in some cases, the positive changes that illness may have had on your life that this means to you and how your life looks differently. Broadly speaking, when we think about this area, we think that it's important to learn how to tame fear of recurrence to enable each and every woman to reclaim the future for herself, a life full of worth and meaning. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Olin. That was really superb. And I have to say that balancing um, is a wonderful model for everyone to have, and I'm sure we'll come up again during the Q&A, and I'm sure there'll be questions for you as well. But thank you so much. It was really a wonderful perspective, and thank you. Our next speaker is Dr. Karen Hurley. Dr. Hurley is a psychologist, hereditary cancer risk, Center for Behavioral Health, clinical member, Cancer Prevention, Control, and Population Research Program, Case Comprehensive Cancer Center, Cleveland Clinic. Dr. Hurley will be addressing confronting, continuing uncertainty, tips for coping with fear of recurrence, using mind-body techniques to cope with fear of recurrence. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Hurley. Thank you so much for having me, and I really appreciate the um, opportunity um, to talk to you all at this time. And what I'm going to be talking about comes both from the research uh, that we know on stress and coping, but also from my experience um, sitting in the room with women who are concerned about their uh, risk of recurrence. And so this really represents collective wisdom of the many, many women who've come and entrusted their stories to me. So um, in this time of uh, the COVID-19 crisis, uh, the way I've been expressing this is that um, for people who are um, cancer uh, survivors or, you know, still in cancer treatment, is life is now putting a second helping of stress on your plate without asking whether the first one was enough. So, um, and this is landing on uh, each person differently based on, you know, what's going on in their lives, and it's also landing on communities differently. So uh, the experience of COVID-19 is affecting the triple negative breast cancer community differently. And I wanted to start by putting a name on some of the things that you might be noticing on how this is different for you and different for your community um, compared to the more general um, population. Number one, um, we've all been experiencing um, hassles and changed routines um, but the, uh, you know, for, you know, not being able to go to your exercise class, changing how you shop for groceries, these, um, you know, we talk so much about how diet and exercise um, is important in reducing your uh, risk of recurrence and lacking the access or having changes in that may be feeling very stressful to you right now. Um, people are also experiencing rearrangements in roles of the uh, in the family, depending on whether you are um, maintaining physical distancing at home uh, or if you are um, uh, still uh, out in the uh, working world and uh, experiencing potential exposure. Um, you know, in general, when I'm talking to people about reducing um, their vulnerability to stress, I talk about the importance of reaching, reaching out and not isolating. Now, of course, we are all experiencing more isolation and not less. 
um, those of you, especially if you're still, you know, in treatment or in early recovery stages, you know, you may have a certain sense of welcome to my world. You've already experienced a restriction in um, your ability to uh, move about in the world. Um, but it doesn't make it any less stressful that now that more people are talking about this, and it's still different than uh, what you um, have experienced, this layering of different kinds of isolation. Um, you know, there, there, uh, the financial toxicity of cancer uh, treatment is there uh, depending on uh, coverage and resources that you have in your particular area. Um, but now we're adding on the economic suffering that has uh, spread around the globe. Um, uh, we also have, um, there's also that sense of uh, threat um, being uncertain, you know, to what extent, uh, you know, is your physical condition considered an underlying condition that makes you more vulnerable? That may be very stressful for some people. And then, um, you know, depending on, again, where you are in your um, in your recovery process, you may still be getting your energy back. There may have been that sense of what am I going to be able to do once I start feeling better again? But the world that you're going to be reentering is now changing rapidly. You know, the job market is changing, the social world is changing, and so things that you were looking forward to getting back to may not be there in the same way. All of that said, the task of living with um, the uncertainty that comes after uh, cancer diagnosis and treatment really remains the same, of tending to your mind, spirit, and body to live as well as possible. Fear of recurrence in particular still needs attention because it can affect your quality of sleep, um, which is so important to uh, physical recovery. Um, it may affect your ability when you fear recurrence to interpret symptoms in your body and to accept reassurance that you're still okay. Um, and also, if you're preoccupied with fear of recurrence, you may find it hard to be present and engage with people and activities that give you meaning. And this doesn't stop, even though the texture of our days, our context with people and the activities we engage in, has sometimes changed quite dramatically, depending on where you are. So, um, so in terms of dealing with fear of recurrence, you may already be too well aware that these fears are not easily dismissed by simple reassurance or by logic. Somebody may have already told you, you're probably fine. When you've already probably been through the experience that said, someone said, oh, it's probably nothing, but then something turned out to be something. And then you know, it becomes harder to say, well, if I landed on the wrongs on the numbers one time, how can you promise me that I won't land on the wrong side of the numbers again? You may also hear uh, uh, someone try to reassure you your chances are low. Um, and again, that same thing, you know, once you've been on one side of the numbers, um, that doesn't really provide that same level of reassurance. Um, somebody may tell you to just put it out of your head as if that were easy to do. And of course, if it were that easy, you would have already done it. So what I'm listening for is the just word just means that somebody doesn't really understand what it means to get from here to there in terms of your experience. So um, with that said, um, given the challenges, what are some things you can do? What are some tools that you can use to stay open and aware and responsive to your environment and to the people who are important to you? Um, so I'm going to share... Um, four specific techniques and go over each of them briefly. And these are things, again, that you know I do in the room with patients. Um, number one is validation, is taking in that the challenge in front of you is neither bigger nor smaller than it is. Um, if it blows up uh, to be too big or all-consuming, then it's overwhelming. If you minimize it, it doesn't fully allow you to process and tend to um, your real needs around the fear of recurrence. Um, the second one is grounding. So in this exercise, 
you look around a room and you name three things that you can see that are blue. And then you look around a second time and you name three more things that are not red. Um, you can use any color that you want, but the idea is it's a way to bring your mind out of the fear zone and into being attentive to your physical environment, bringing you back to the present. Um, I'm so glad that Dr. Rowland uh, mentioned uh, one day at a time because the power of that statement really shines through in this difficult time. So it's not just a pretty thing that we put on our coffee mug, but it's a real work. It's a real discipline to keep your focus one day at a time and not run too far ahead. It's a monotonous task at times, as we are discovering, going day after day after day in the crisis, but it still has the power to um, reduce that sense of being overwhelmed. The last one is using the breath. And this is not just a deep breathing, but first it means finding those sensations of anxiety within you. Everybody experiences anxiety a little bit differently, fear a little bit differently. Is it butterflies in your stomach, tightness in your chest, tightness in the throat? Wherever it is, imagine your breath is traveling inwards and then brushing those sensations very lightly, barely touching them, not expecting it to change or move or to go away, but just using that gentle brushing movement movement of the inner breath and just observe what happens to your sensations as you continue that inner brushing. So then from this calm place that you create with these techniques and maybe others that you explore, we can then approach what is truly in our control and what the limits of that control is over recurrence and more generally. Um, You've heard about distinguishing what you can change and what you can't. And so the next step is then having compassion for that human dilemma that there we do reach a limit over what is under our control. So this means taking effective action that is available to you to protect your health and accepting that no one can promise you for 100% that it's going to do work but you're doing the best you can on your own behalf. Sometimes people get perfectionistic about their survivorship practices, that somehow if I do this wrong, I'm going to flunk, and then recurrence becomes a fear of being punished, that you did something wrong or you didn't do something enough. And again, stepping back from that sense of that there is um, that there's a right or wrong, there's still unknowns about you know how do we um how do we prevent cancer from coming back so it's not a um it's not a reflection on you personally um uh, whether this happens and then lastly um sometimes people will become fearful of their fear that a fear of recurrence will actually stress them out to the point of making them sick and uh to the best of our knowledge uh even though there are you know uh that 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 stress uh that stress and disease do have some linkages is that you know having occasional fearful thoughts are not enough in themselves to tip the balance in the way um so in conclusion i wanted to say that the attitude that we have towards our fear um ha- has a lot to do with living well in uncertainty so that Frantically trying to get rid of your fear of recurrence puts you in a fearful, frantic place. Compassionately tending to your fear puts you in a compassionate place. And then um, lastly, just in terms of the crisis we're all facing, is that it's a call for us to dig deeper, not just into for coping, but really for strength and wisdom, because every culture and every age has had to face challenges that touch not just the individual's but the whole known world. Now, we're focused in this session on the modern challenges of triple negative breast cancer care, but this issue of the collective experience of suffering of our known world, which in our case is the whole globe, is thousands of years old. And we can turn to the wisdom of texts, of myths, of stories from our ancestors to guide us in living fully and well 
right in the middle of uncertain times. Wow. That was amazing. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Hurley. That was an outstanding presentation, really. Um, and that reaching into that inner strength is so important. I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you so much. And for putting it in perspective of the world, actually. Thank you. And our next speaker is Ms. Haley Dinnerman. Ms. Dinnerman is co-founder and executive director, Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation. And she'll be discussing programs of the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation. Um, and I have to say that uh, Ms. Dinnerman is someone that I've had the pleasure of working with for many, many years. Um, and she has, as I mentioned earlier in the program, has really been responsible for uh, supporting many of our programs on triple negative breast cancer, our workshops, our hope line, and so much more. So I'm, um, I'm, I, I feel very much um, just delighted to have her on the call today, and I'm going to turn this program over to her at this point, Ms. Dinnerman. Thank you so much, Dr. Messner. Thank you also to our wonderful speakers for the excellent presentations, to our sponsors, and of course to all of you listening today. Today's teleconference is one of many programs offered by the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation. All of our programming is specifically designed to address the needs of the triple negative community, from patients to survivors to caregivers and, and their loved ones. Um, today, I'd like to highlight a few of our offerings. First, we have many educational brochures and fact sheets that are available in print or also as free downloads from our website. Our popular materials were developed with input from members of our TNBC community, as well as esteemed medical experts in the area of TNBC. Like all of our other educational materials, these brochures have special sections addressing issues like the fear of recurrence that are important to you. These materials also address topics of particular interest to certain members of our TNBC community, including African-American women, those with BRCA mutations, those with early stage diagnoses, and those with metastatic disease. So we really work hard to make sure that every member of our TNBC community can find relevant information and practical guidance in these materials, and I hope you'll use them to your benefit. Our website, tnbcfoundation.org, offers two free and TNBC-specific clinical trials matching services and we're told they're much easier to navigate than, um, than clinical trials matching services and other portals. Our website also has a constantly updated TNBC news section, and a favorite of our community is our online discussion forums. These forums allow you to easily, act, uh, easily connect with thousands of women who are living with triple negative breast cancer any time of the day or night. Our community members use the forums to ask questions about treatment, about how to manage side effects, and anything else related to TNBC. But most importantly, our discussion forums offer consistent support. If you aren't currently registered for the forums, you should consider joining them, and you can even join anonymously if you like. Um, of course, we'd, we also uh, like to take every opportunity to meet with you in person to offer support. As we all know, given the current pandemic, this isn't going to be possible for the next few months. Uh, the, the TNBC Foundation normally produces the triple negative program at Living Beyond Breast Cancer's conference where we've connected with many of you every September. Please rest assured that while we cannot meet in person this fall, the conference will go on. We are moving to an interactive digital pro uh, platform this year, and while the conference will be different, it will include all the important educational offerings you've come to expect in addition to opportunities to socialize with our incredible TNBC community online. We're working really hard to make it a great experience and hope you can join us. If you follow us on Facebook or visit our website, you'll be able to register for the conference over the summer. Uh, so we are working on many additional opportunities to connect with you in person as soon as the pandemic is under control and things are safe. So please be on the lookout for information from us soon. We look forward to connecting with you all, whether on social media, by phone, or online at tnbcfoundation.org. Hopefully soon we'll be able to see you all in person as well. So once again, thank you for joining us, and now I'll turn back the program to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, just Ms. Dinneman. Wonderful programs and, and wonderful, um, really, compensation for things that are happening now, so doing things virtually that might have been um, otherwise face-to-face. -face. And so I think we're all um, learning to um, uh, to create 
So still create those supportive programs, but be, be creative in how we do that so we keep people safe. And our next speaker is Ms. Lauren Chatelian. She's an oncology social worker, and she's our Women and Children's Program Coordinator at Cancer Care. And she will be discussing, um, first of all, a review of the free psychosocial services offered by the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation Helpline. But she'll also be addressing, actually, some of the challenges that some of you may face in terms of social distancing, in terms of perhaps feeling a bit more isolated. Um, so I'm going to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Chatelain. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. My name is Lauren, and I'm an oncology social worker at Cancer Care, as well as Cancer Care's Women and Children's Program Coordinator. My role includes working with women diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer and their families. The Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation and Cancer Care have partnered together to ensure that those diagnosed with TMBC have access to free psychosocial services and support. The Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation Helpline, which is generously funded by the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation, provides callers with access to comprehensive services. These services include short-term cancer-focused telephone counseling nationally, TMBC-specific telephone and online support groups, online forums, publications, as well as limited financial assistance. By calling the TMBC helpline, individuals are connected with an oncology social worker trained in the physical, emotional, and practical challenges that may arise when diagnosed with TMBC. There are many aspects of a triple negative breast cancer diagnosis that could be addressed throughout psychosocial supportive services, making informed treatment decisions, quality of life concerns, communication with one's medical team, as well as concerns specific to recurrence are important topics that can be discussed with an oncology social worker. Working one-on-one -on -one with an oncology social worker through individual counseling can offer a space to express one's feelings, emotions, and concerns. A social worker can offer support and guidance as well as help navigate difficult decision-making among other challenges specific to a TMBC diagnosis. This may include adjusting to and finding new ways of coping with this diagnosis throughout treatment as well as post-treatment, which would be tailored to an individual. A cancer diagnosis can be very overwhelming. Establishing a supportive network may help to relieve feelings of anxiety related to one's diagnosis. Joining a support group can be a way of connecting with others going through a similar experience who may understand what you could encounter. Being a member in a support group can offer the opportunity to speak with others, gather and provide support, as well as obtain information. A support group may help to reduce feelings of loneliness and help to increase feelings of hope and empowerment. Being a member in a support group with others who have been diagnosed with TMBC can be extremely helpful in hearing how others are coping with this diagnosis specifically. As Dr. Mesner mentioned, there may be several recent challenges that individuals have experienced in regards to COVID-19. One possible challenge is social distancing, a term that has become very prevalent throughout the current pandemic. As we continue to follow guidelines from the CDC, we have learned the importance of this practice. It can be very difficult to manage emotions related to social distancing on a daily basis. Social distancing can cause amplified feelings of isolation and continues to be an adjustment. If your support system feels distant, see if there may be an option to connect over the phone or online, if possible, to engage with others. Continue to connect with people who have common interests or who may be going through a similar experience as you. It is very possible they are looking for someone to connect with as well. This time may provide a wonderful opportunity to connect with others diagnosed with TMBC through online forums, online support groups, or a telephone group. Short-term counseling services through the TMBC Foundation and Cancer Care are offered to those undergoing treatment as well as those who have recently completed treatment through the 18-month post-treatment period. This is a challenging and uncertain time for many people. Please remember you are not alone. You may find that others are feeling similarly to you during this time. Continue to find ways to connect with others, focus on your physical, emotional, and mental health, and consider alternative ways of seeking joy and comfort. Adhering to social distancing recommendations and protocols can be difficult. If you are feeling anxious, consider creating a list of ideas for when you are feeling this way. Think about what has possibly re relieved stress for you previously. 
maybe meditation or breathing techniques, as Dr. Hurley mentioned. Depending on where you live and if possible, consider stepping outside for some fresh air, maybe going on a brief walk. Continue to communicate with loved ones to help them understand the importance of putting these precautions in place in regards to your diagnosis. If you are interested in learning more about the support services the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation and Cancer Care offer, I encourage you to call the TMDC helpline at 1-877-880-8622. By calling the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation helpline, you are able to connect with an oncology social worker. We are here to offer you support throughout this experience and look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for your attention and the opportunity to speak today. It has been such a pleasure to be a part of this very informative and helpful program. I will now turn the workshop back to Dr. Mesner. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Ms. Chatelain. That was excellent, really. Um, and uh, now we have time for questions, and I'm going to ask our operators to bring all of our speakers on board so that we can actually have questions um, for them. And we have actually quite a few questions that's come in from our um, uh, participants already. Um, so I'm going to ask um, if uh, Sonia could explain to everybody how to queue up for questions. And um, uh, we're going to take as many of your questions as possible. Uh, Sonia? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask the question. Our first question comes from Lena S. Your line is now open. Yes. I'm just wondering if you are using circulating tumor cell testing particularly for patients, triple negative patients with residual disease to track for early onset of recurrence or metastases? Thank you. Oh, thank you for that question. Um, so, um, Dr. Slaney, could you address that question, please, in a general way? Thank you. Sure. Um, so, there is some very interesting data. I would say probably even more robust with circulating tumor DNA looking to see if detecting circulating DNA may be a way for us to detect what I would consider micrometastatic disease. So maybe when there's just a little bit of cancer cells that may be around, um, they haven't caused, you know, a metastatic disease, but we know they're there. Um, there is some data that has found that people, for example, who got chemotherapy prior to breast surgery but had some detectable circulating tumor DNA seem to be at higher risk for having a recurrence compared to those with undetectable ctDNA. And so I think it begs the question, should we be testing for ctDNA after surgery and then giving people who have it um, extra therapy or even monitoring for ctDNA to see if someone may be undetectable becomes detectable, and should that be a time when we give additional systemic drugs to prevent a metastatic recurrence from happening. And so while we are not yet standardly testing for this at this point in time, because I do think the assays need a little bit further development um, to increase sensitivity and specificity, there are lots of clinical trials that are doing this where we take a patient who maybe, for example, finished their breast surgery, we draw their blood, see if we can detect any ctDNA. If it's there, there are, for example, clinical trials that give specific drugs and then look to see if the ctDNA gets cleared with that therapy. Um, so I do think it is going to be the wave of the future and certainly is in clinical trial development right now, but is not yet standard of care. Excellent. Thank you. We have a question, a number of questions um, that have come in about exercise. I'm going to start with, I'll use this one as an example, but it kind of, it captures a bit of what everyone is kind of saying. Can you speak to the difficulty of exercising during COVID? I'm worried my risk of recurrence will go up since I can't exercise like I normally would right now, living in a small third floor apartment and no space to exercise outside. Um, so, Dr. Slaney, do you want to start with that one, and then if anyone else would like to add, it just it is it, but it is a question that I have to say, over half of our online questions are coming in with that question. So, <laughs> Dr. Slaney, uh, oh, it's an excellent question. Yes, it's an excellent question. 
you know, there are some data that have suggested that women who are more active and um, exercise regularly may have a lower risk of occurrence. And this is actually getting tested in a prospective randomized trial right now called the BeWell trial. And there are certainly other additional studies that are ongoing trying to address this. Um, so I think there certainly is a suggestion that exercise is very important, um, you know, certainly with the thought that it may prevent recurrence, but I think also lots of other benefits to one's health, um, including stress relief during this um, very challenging time. And so I do think it is good to prioritize exercise, and I fully agree it is challenging right now during COVID-19 with all the social distancing that is required. Um, I will say there are lots of programs that are online, including our institution even has free programs for cancer patients um, with free exercise classes that are throughout the day. They you know, offer exercise physiology consultations to help patients. Um, and so I would, you know, while it's challenging in a very small space, um, I would definitely think about um, some of these online kind of aerobic or yoga, um, you know, lots of these kinds of classes to try and keep up um, exercise, even with the restrictions that we may have. Excellent. Thank you. Does anyone awesome. want to add to that? Yes. Uh, yes, yeah, Dr. Hurley. Um, I, I just want to uh, say that also um, just acknowledging a little bit that you know you may have your favorite or preferred form of exercise maybe exercise was a way that you got out and were social or was a way that you got private time so um the change in in exercise you know can be can affect you know your perception of risk and also there are these other functions that you may not have uh you know, really recognized so that said yes the, the you know there are lots of people who have been putting suggestions online, you know, everything from uh, routines that you can do in small spaces to how to convert your soup cans into uh, hand weights. So, um, you know, if you can explore the creativity that is out there um, in an open way, that that, that may uh, help you over the hump of being dislocated from your current, the routines that you were used to. Excellent. Very creative. That sounds great. That's actually that's a great idea to um so to use what you have um and uh and to be able to do this is excellent. Um and um so I have a, this is a general question. Well, if you could address it in a general way, um, Dr. Slaney, what are the chances, this is, again, a, a personal question, but I guess if you could address it generally to help our participant perhaps ask their healthcare team, what are the chances of someone with TNBC who had 100% response to ACT, partial mastectomy, and BRCA negative to have a recurrence? So, again, that's a, if you could just address it in a general way or even to help this person then ask the, those questions of their healthcare team in a telehealth visit or something. Sure. So, you know, I think in general what we do know is people who get systemic chemotherapy prior to surgery and have what we consider a pathologic complete response, meaning there was no detectable cancer found at the time of surgery, we know that that is very prognostic, and really meaning that those people who achieve a pathologic complete response generally have a significantly lower risk of recurrence relative to someone who did not have a pathologic complete response. Um, the specific numbers, though, are challenging, though, because it does, even though we know having a piece, what I call PCR, pathologic complete response, is associated with better outcomes, that we also know that the baseline amount of tumor and the baseline amount of lymph node involvement prior to chemotherapy does still have some prognostic implications. And so usually it's taking both pieces of information to account um, how much tumor there was to begin with and then the response that was obtained at the time of surgery, putting those two pieces together to get um, you know, a specific prediction of risk of recurrence. Um, so I hesitate to give a number because I think, you know, it really will depend on, um, you know, a little more information than we certainly have, um, but generally is a very good prognostic indicator to have had a pathologic complete response. 
And another question, again, it's personal, but if you could address it, Dr. Slaney, and I'm going to ask others to weigh in on it as well, but I'm wondering what the plan is for women who've had their tumors removed. I've had 30 rounds of radiation, 15 rounds of chemo, 11 taxol, and 4 AC. I'm interested in what to do now to help avoid recurrence. My last chemo treatment was 2019, and last radiation was 1219. I've been quarantined for seven weeks, and I'm taking all precautions I can. So if you could, again, address this in a way that helps everyone on the call to think about their, um, about, about their concerns. So I think, you know, in, in general, if someone had surgery up front followed by chemotherapy and radiation, which it sounds like and maybe this specific situation, after completion of the chemotherapy and radiation in that situation, there isn't standard additional medications, for example, that we would give to help prevent recurrence. And really what's recommended is routine follow-up to make sure that, we're not seeing any signs or symptoms of a recurrence and that, you know, you're a very good communication with your physician to report any new symptoms if they may arise so that your physician can work them up and over time. You know, usually these, everyone always asks me, well, what symptom am I looking for? And there really isn't anything specific. I think it's just anything new that's persistent is always worth discussing with your oncologist and just to make sure that everything always gets checked out and is reviewed um, you know, with any concerns addressed. But in terms of, you know, medications, there wouldn't be extra drugs per se to take. There are lots of clinical trials that are exploring whether taking additional medications in that particular situation will help prevent recurrence. There are trials such as vaccine studies, immunotherapies, um, exercise and diet tr interventions, aspirin interventions. So there are lots of different studies of little extra things, but nothing, again, that's yet been proven. And certainly we do recommend to continue to remain active and exercising, and as was discussed earlier, um, is good. Um, but again, I think important communication with between you and your physician is probably key just for reporting of any symptoms, uh, but nothing specific that certainly is recommended um, outside of it at this time. And since our call, since this particular questioner did have the issue of being quarantined for seven weeks, um, does anyone else want to comment on just that whole experience um, for people, any other speakers who have kind of addressed um, tips for coping? Yes. So is Julia Rowland. I, yes. I think one of the challenges here is, of course, you know, what what to do after treatment ends, and this has been a growing area of interest or this what's the care plan there's a careful plan when you're in active treatment and then you finish treatment and you've kind of patted on the back congratulations and here's your first follow-up but there's not a game plan and that leaves a lot of people anxious about the fact that maybe they're not doing enough or the right thing to remain healthy or keep the disease from coming back and I think again Dr. Polanyi has mentioned there are no new drugs at the moment, there's certainly things under study, but just good advice about practical taking care of yourself, um, managing stress if you're feeling under stress, eating well, sleeping well, getting outside if you can with distancing in mind and masks if appropriate, but even modifying that for home use is, is, is general healthy behaviors because that's what you're going to stay with even as social distancing is shifted over time and things go back to some, whatever their, our new normal is going to be in the broader world, your new normal is going to be including good health behaviors for yourself, taking really good care of yourself. Excellent. Well, I have to say that um, I want to thank our speakers. You've been amazing. I also want to thank all our participants, first of all, for asking such great questions, both on the telephone and online. Now, I recognize that, of course, there are many more questions that people have that we have not um, answered um, on this call. And even if you were able to ask a question, of course, um, we still want you to go back to treating healthcare team. Either schedule a telehealth appointment with them, bring back the information you've learned, and see how it best applies to you. And most importantly, as we're about to conclude the call, I want to give you some places for, to get your questions answered. And I think that we are 
partnering today with the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation, and I think that their uh, their helpline is a wonderful resource for all of you. So actually, um, within about two days of this program, you're going to be receiving an evaluation form. We love it if you complete the evaluation form, but we also, in the evaluation, will include all types of additional resources for you to use to get your questions answered. And of course, the places to go to get your questions answered, we would suggest at this point are your healthcare team. We don't want you to ever sidestep them, but we also know that many of you like to go to credible resources, resources that have been, first of all, vetted in, in 2020 by major centers in this country, major National Cancer Institute centers. And so I do recommend very much um, that you could contact the National Cancer Institute, and we'll give you that resource as well. Most importantly, as we conclude today, I do not want anyone to feel that you're alone in coping with triple negative breast cancer and fear of recurrence. I, I know that that is normal to feel alone and even more normal to feel alone now with social distancing. But I want you to all know that you're part of the community of support, and you've heard about all the different services that are available now to you to take advantage of them. Please do. They are free. They're available to you. They're simply a telephone call or for international participants, a mouse clip, a mouse clip away. You can simply click on your, on your computer and go to their websites, pose a question, get support. It's really important. This is a time um, that you really want to do that. Again, I want to thank you all very much for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. Anyway, now, disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.